Sequel Quest, Episode 71, a Supernatural Sequel Special. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. Welcome to Sequel Quest. Yep, just welcome. Happy to have you listening. No parody intro this week. And uh, you know why? Because we got nothing. No prequel, no sequel to a popular film franchise. We couldn't agree on a movie this week, guys. <laughs> so we may have to put it out to the rest of the world for you guys to help us on occasions like this. But we finally just settled on an interesting format for tonight. So, Adam, take her away. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to be fair, you know, the show is not a disarray. You know, we're not going anywhere. We still love what we're doing. You know, it's just that we had a guest scheduled. We had to cancel, pushed us back a week, and then we couldn't all agree on the movies well let me put it this way just so you know what was being pitched at the time like jeremy wanted to do the tom cruise movie oblivion jeff and i haven't seen it uh, we might not want to see it jeff suggested little miss sunshine i don't think there's anywhere to go with that i don't <laughs> you know no offense jeff but come on we took xanadu somewhere yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm pushing for Super Mario Brothers. But anyway, the compromise was basically each of us chose a movie we were passionate about or interested in, at least. Yeah, I'd say more interested. And created our sequel. None of us knows what the other is choosing. So there's a little bit of mystery there. We can get it all out of our systems and then come back next week with our scheduled show, which is going to be Tron 3 with our old friend Michael Kennedy. So this is not the new format of Sequel Quest. Uh, uh, he's not the one who canceled, by the way, also. That that guest will be on in the future. <laughs> we're not throwing anybody under the podcast bus here. Life happens. You know, we're happy to have them on when they're available. But yeah, so it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting night, kind of flying by the seat of our pants, but I think we'll all have some pleasant surprises for each of us. We'll, well see. Well, and let's be real here. This is not a live podcast, people. So right. it's not like we have to do, you know, it's I, I, I was excited about doing this. I mean, you know, uh, we kind of had talked about doing something like this for a while, so mm. let's not make it sound too crazy here. That's true. It's a, like I said, it's not. This is the end of the world for us. We we usually have a little bit more focus, and this true. is just kind of a little okay. bit more out An there. An extended going. apology is how we're starting this off. As much as you may think it, we have not yet reached the bottom of the barrel for mm, <laughs> terrible sequel ideas oh, or yes. wonderful sequel ideas. Come on, let's now. have some hope. Yes, optimism. Well, Jeff, you are the most optimistic about tonight. So why don't you kick it off? Tell us a little bit about the original film you chose, and then okay. we'll be interested to hear your sequel. Well, it's actually, it's one of my favorites that uh, are kind of like littler known favorites, I guess. But especially after the Oscars a couple of weeks ago, uh, and Shape of Water won. So people actually started paying attention to Guillermo del Toro for the first time, it seems. Uh, but one of my favorites of his movies is actually kind of like his first big movie. For those of you that don't kind of know the, the history of Guillermo del Toro, he was actually a makeup artist for a long time. And then in 90, I think it's 1993, he came up with this movie called Kronos, which was kind of like a horror movie. It was in Spanish and it just like crushed the award shows in Mexico. And then it came to Cannes and it won Cannes. 
And that's what kind of got him noticed. And so then in Spain, he actually had this next movie, 1995. And it was a big movie there, but it didn't really, it wasn't as big here. Not until now where he's kind of a big name. But the biggest reason, well, the two big reasons that I love this movie is that one, again, it's kind of early Guillermo del Toro, where he wasn't Pacific Rim, the second Hellboy movie, where he kind of went a little overboard with his whole makeup thing. But this one, not only was this kind of early del Toro, but also as far as I can tell, this is the first time that he and Doug Jones had worked together. If you guys don't know who Doug Jones is, Doug Jones is actually the guy that was the shape of water. He was the fish man or whatever you call him. He was also the creepy pale man guy in Pan's Labyrinth. He, he's basically a body actor, but he's actually a real actor too. So this one, he actually appeared as himself. So it's one, again, that's what I really like because he is an amazing actor. Not only the things that he can do to mean seem kind of otherworldly, but just as an actor alone. Now, to be perfectly honest, I did look up his IMDb, and he, he was actually, he had a bit role in Batman Returns as one of the creepy clowns. Oh, and, really? Oh, yeah, I, he did, that's cool. He did a, appear in a couple of episodes of In Living Color. But this was kind of his breakout, like, first big one. So anyway, uh, it was actually, it was released in Spain, and it was called El Diablo en Fuego, which in English, the best translation I've heard is The Devil on Fire. That's just such a great title. So anyway, it takes place in 1936 Spain. Actually, I'm, I'm kind of reading the IMDb synopsis. In fact, I'll just read it. So tensions are high after left-wing socialist popular front party officials are elected in february of 1936 police officer luis suenza has been on the force for 10 years but has been staying out of the political game though that's becoming harder and harder things become even more difficult one night when on patrol he arrests someone calling himself the prince while luis is driving him to the station the man begins telling him how the world really works as he does the scenery around the car begins changing taking the duo on a journey behind the scenes of mankind, seeing people as they truly are, uh, from a mother longing to get rid of her children, a priest's secret desires, to a politician's real view of his fellow man. Their journey ends back at the police station in the real world, as Luis hears about his lieutenant having been gunned down by four anti-government youth. In his rage, and with the prince's voice ringing in his ears, he gathers his four fellow policemen to even the score. The prince conjures a window in front of him, uh, showing the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, smirks, and walks away as credits roll. Well, this is actually a pretty good synopsis, I thought, but uh, as you can kind of tell, it's definitely a dark, a lot of Del Toro, yeah. even as you see Pan's Labyrinth, is dark, but it usually ends on kind of like a good wins in the end sort of a way. This one didn't, <laughs> where this one yeah. essentially, as the devil on fire suggests, the devil starts the Spanish Civil War in 1936. And if you know anything about the Spanish Civil War, it was a bloody conflict, essentially between fascists and communists. So it was brutal on both sides. Tens of thousands of people were killed, not even soldiers. It was just nasty. And for me, this is not a movie that I would say I enjoy, but it's a movie for me that I feel really captures that feeling of the terribleness of this event. 
And and for me, especially that scene, because so and if you guys couldn't tell from the thing, is it so yeah, so what happens is he's with the guy in the car, and then for you don't even quite know why it's happening, but you kind of figure out it must be the guy in the backseat because Doug Jones is kind of a creepy guy. And everything just starts changing, and basically it's kind of like Scrooged. It doesn't look like Scrooge, but if you think about Scrooge... <laughs> Buster you know, Poindexter shows up driving the cab. Exactly, oh, wow. exactly. But if you get that image in your head of like this kind of being transported to a different place, it's kind of like that in a certain sense, mm-hmm. uh, but it feels very you know, Guillermo del Toro E, where it's very supernatural, otherworldly, but just the scenes that they see, like that first one, the, the, uh, it's not actually the first one, but the one where they go and they see this mother and they just kind of like the way that he conveys the fact that this mother like resents her children for what they have done to her, like not in a horrific way, but just in a like, just in a real and dirty sort of a way, like it really gives kind of a brutal picture of mankind. And, and for me, again, not that I love it, I can only watch it every so often, but it, it's kind of everything that I think Guillermo del Toro should be, you know? It was yeah, like when that, he was that, that's his curious. style, right? It's like the monsters are never really the monsters, right? It's right, humanity exactly. that are the monsters. And even it reminds me, yeah, because he always has those like that one like disturbing thing. Like I haven't seen this movie, but I always go back to like Pan's Labyrinth when that one yeah. guy just gets his face caved in and you're like, yeah. oh, you know, so I'm sure there's got to be moments like that in this thing. And also I was thinking people probably think it's weird that if it's a Spanish film, that he got Doug Jones in that, but I'm pretty sure that Ron Perlman was in Kronos, right? So that's where he started his relationship with Hellboy. Yeah, yeah and it's not only that, but it's because it was the same thing in Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth, you know, was done entirely in Spanish, even though Doug Jones didn't speak Spanish. From what I've heard, it's not that he learned Spanish fluently, but he memorized his lines in Spanish. So uh, some of that is even more so. It was it was kind of like like remember when we did last year and Adam you you did uh, Lion as your movie yeah and that kid that was in Lion didn't actually know English he just memorized the sounds phonetically right and he and it sounded like he spoke English. So I don't think it's that extreme with Doug Jones, but it's something along those lines. So this movie affected you. So I'm very curious. It sounds like you said it ends on this dour note. So what do you do for a sequel or is it a prequel? What did you decide to do? It's both, as a matter of fact. And to be perfectly honest, my first thought was as a sequel, uh, especially as somebody who is spiritual and religious, and I don't want to see the devil winning. Um, (laughs) So my sequel I would want to do it in Spanish again because, to be honest, and 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 that's the thing too is, and I don't know for you guys, either listeners or you, uh, Adam, you and Jeremy, there's something about a foreign language film. It was the same thing I felt about Pan's Labyrinth. Is that somehow it seems more significant when it's in a foreign language? Mm-hmm. Like that was the thing when I watched The Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Is that when you watch it in Chinese, something about it just seems more legit. I don't know why, but it just does. So anyway, I would want to do this in Spanish again. So I called this one El Dia de Diablo. So this is the day of the devil. So we're not getting any happier just yet. Not quite. The movie would actually begin with current day New York City. And I would see this like pan shot of it going through the city, seeing the interactions of the people in New York City. And so real kind of hectic, chaotic, I mean, especially building off of that last movie where it was kind of about the worst of mankind. That same sort of a theme where you're kind of seeing humankind not at their best. And in the midst of this, you would eventually focus in on one particular face and you would see that it is the, quote, prince. 
and I'd want to get it. It'd have to be Doug Jones, and we'd have to somehow make him look exactly like he did back in 95. But uh, he's a creepy-looking guy, so it kind of, you know, creepy looks stay the same. So anyway, and and he would just be kind of walking through the crowd with that same sort of smirk that he had in that first movie, where it's just this kind of, like, knowing thing. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's hard to describe that look that he gets on his face, but just that he has that look as he's walking around. So the movie would, would kind of get going as he gets into a cab, and he tells the cabbie his destination. I don't know enough about New York to know exactly where it would be going, but it would be somewhere... A little bit of a distance. And then the cabbie ends up getting cut off. So the cabbie starts swearing at the guy or whatever and just goes, I tell you, man, like, mankind is a pit of blah, 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 or just, like, griping about mankind or something like that. And then, again, the prince is going to smirk a little bit, and then he's going to kind of lean back, and I would see him kind of closing his eyes, and then I like going into a flashback. A couple of vignettes. So they would be a little bit longer than just montages. They would be maybe a vignette of about 15, 20, something long enough that you could actually experience the emotion of this. And again, where I would let Del Toro kind of play with the feel and the mood of what he's creating. So the first one goes back to the prince meeting this guy back in the 1800s named Maximilian. And he's this really highly moral lawyer who is very anti-death penalty, but he's very pro the downtrodden and the, and the poor. And then the prince meets him, similar to what he did to Luis back in, in, in 1936, painting this picture of exactly how horrible the wealthy are and how everything that is wrong is really the wealthy's fault, eventually building Maximilian, whose last name is Robespierre, up to starting the reign of terror and the French Revolution. And, and again, same sort of a thing, where the prince knows all of these thousands of people are going to die at the hands of this guy. And and then another one that jumping forward, I thought I saw another one maybe being this actor named John, who is just kind of a struggling actor that he's trying to get his way and he convinces him of immortality if he could just shoot the president of the United States. And of course that's John Wilkes Booth. Uh, then I'd want to do another one maybe around World War II or something to kind of build up because again, we kind of already did the 30s, but then something after that. And either way, that was kind of going to be the bulk of the movie. I don't exactly know how you could have a cohesive storyline through all of these vignettes, but that was kind of my idea. But then it would ultimately come back to present day where the cabbie like wakes him up he's like hey hey mac like we're here drops him wherever he drops him off and then have some sort of a moment that as the cabbie is driving away the cabbie all of a sudden conjures up his own window just like the prince did in the first one and that he sees that the future of the guy he just dropped off because of how he dropped him off that he's eventually going to be killed or something like that. So then we figure out that this cabbie is actually, I don't know, an angel or whatever, and that he has actually then defeated the devil in kind of that same way because he has set everything up. It's going to lead to his death. So a happy ending, so to speak. The day of the devil is when he dies. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's a good little twist there. No, but that, that's pretty cool. You never know. Maybe Del Toro's looking for an idea to spark him back to his earlier days. And true. now that he's got carte blanche for whatever he wants to do, I'm sure. <laughs> definitely true. That'll be the one. Okay, Jeremy, how about you? What did you decide to pull out here? Ah, uh, I dug deep on this one. Um, I decided to go with Curse of Mary. And before you jump on it saying it's a horror <laughs> flick, it's not. Okay. Uh, released in the summer of 2006, 
Uh, it tried to, but failed miserably trying to compete with the Pirates franchise. It struck okay. out. Uh, many, many of the actors in this movie have actually requested it be stricken from their IMDb pages due to how badly it flopped. Wait, this isn't the one with Michael Clark Duncan, is it? No. Oh. Which, okay, okay. sorry. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, because I, I remember seeing a trailer for this back in the day, because I was going to the movies a lot in uh, 2006. And so, and I, I wasn't particularly thrilled with the Pirates franchise. And I had heard, yeah, you know, so <laughs> yeah, I, you've I never saw, been like, a like, real fan of them. No, it's, that's not my thing. Yeah. So uh, I didn't see this in theaters either. That may be partly why the movie failed. <laughs> because you didn't see it. <laughs> there was so much going on in 2006 during the summer months. Just these are the movies that it had to compete against from April to September. United 93, The Benchwarmers, The Da Vinci Code, Mission Impossible 3, X-Men 3, Click, Superman Returns, Cars, Nacho Libre, Tokyo Drift, Pirates, Dead Man's Chest, John Tucker Must Die, Monster House, Lady in the Water, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, Clerks 2, Talladega Nights, The Illusionist, Snakes on the Plane, and The Prestige. I saw a good majority of those films in theaters, Mm. and looking back, I'm wondering, A, when I had the time, and B, when I had the money to do that. So if it was was such a flop, why did you choose this one? Then how did you come to have any interest in it at all eventually? I came to it because it's it's based on a true story. The Mary Celeste is naval tale. This ship that just kind of showed up out of nowhere, 400 miles from land, and they found no trace of why the crew had abandoned ship. And so this, this movie, it, it begins with this mystery of them finding the ship and evolves into more of a courtroom drama type thing, along with an investigation and trying to figure out what happened and why this ship with all of its cargo, the crew's belongings were there, just everybody vanished. Okay, because because that's I I remember made that's what the trailer was. I mean the tra- that's all the trailer showed you. So the fact that it turns into a courtroom drama or whatever else, like I wouldn't have imagined that. You know, like I remember right. that element. It was maybe I was seeing a teaser. I don't know. So I decided to follow this up because the ship went back into service. Like it was returned in the historical records. It was returned to the owners of the ship. And it just became this cursed name. Nobody wanted to use it and buy it. And every time somebody bought it and used it, it was for a loss. So Mm. we're diving back in and we're taking the history and giving it a comedic new life. Twisted Uh from the historical record books. Uh, (laughs) The return of your favorite ghosts, ghouls, and phantoms haunting the high seas. (laughs) Captains of her cursed wheel keep dying under mysterious circumstances. Alas, me mateys. The Phantom, Captain Briggs, and Ghost Crew are back, this time haunting the cursed Mary Celeste until its final voyage. Wait, does that... Are That's you, your pitch. That's okay. all you're getting. 
<laughs> we got to choose your, your pitch to get more out of that. Okay. So, but you're saying it's, this is a comedically charged film. Yeah, because you can't take it too seriously because it's just a lot of transactionary things, but all the captains keep dying mysteriously. <laughs> And the ship even dies mysteriously. There's karma involved and all sorts of things. So if we bring the ghosts of the ghost crew back, we can explore that and have a little fun with it. Okay. Maybe explain away some of these captain's deaths. We shall see. We shall see. All right. Well... I think it's interesting that we've all went of historical here or these films are kind of set with like a supernatural feel at olden times. I didn't know we were all so interested in these things. I feel like we haven't chosen that many movies with these slants. So maybe we need to put that on the <laughs> we schedule. We haven't yet. <laughs> but my movie, I kind of have a weird history with this film because it's old. It's from 1984. It's a film that I saw playing on the two o'clock movie block that was a 2 a.m. Fox Channel 11 in the mid 90s oh my goodness because i had this weird period from like 12 to 13 maybe it was all the hormones i couldn't sleep (laughs) at night a lot of times and i would just go out and turn on the tv it'd be weird movies like vendetta (laughs) or all these odd movies alligator i think was one and everything is always extra creepy or weird that early (laughs) in the morning when you're kind of out of it and um so this one is called the slayings at salem i don't know if that rings a bell to you guys at all i don't know if jeff you possibly we're up at 2 a.m. and watching Channel 11. I don't know. (laughs) But when I look at it, I'm almost pretty sure it's where Joss Whedon stole the idea for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie that he wrote, (laughs) even though it got changed. You know, that's about vampires. This movie's about witches. But as I go through it, you might see some parallels there. So again, the slangs at Salem, Donald Sutherland was in it. Jeremy Irons was in it. I didn't, I didn't know these actors really from anything like the, they're kind of like a different generation of films I usually watch, you know. Cheryl Ladd, I knew, I think she was on uh, Charlie's Angels, and this guy Timothy Bottoms, who was in a lot of 80s, 70s movies. Anyway, it was actually directed by Toby Hooper, Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff, so it's kind of his realm, I guess. But basically it tells the story of a British preacher, his name was Arthur Craven, that was Donald Sutherland. He moves to Salem, Massachusetts, in the late 1600s with his younger sister. Her name was Ashlyn. That was Cheryl Ladd. And then her husband was Kent and that was Timothy Bottoms. And But they kind of hint at the beginning that this preacher's got a secret. And at one point, Pastor Craven, you know, whatever they call him there, he was, uh, he finds that his sister's been seduced by this charismatic man who kind of comes in and out of the town. And his name's Morlock. And that's Jeremy Irons just being super creepy and quiet and sinister. But he seems to have like complete control of this girl's actions. And so all of a sudden, Ashlyn leaves her husband out of nowhere. She moves to the edge of town with this group of outsiders that all the townspeople are always whispering about that they're witches or whatever. And then while this is all going on, Craven reveals to Kent that Morlock is the leader of a coven of witches. And it's like, how do you know that? And so Craven, he's actually part of a society of witch hunters that are trained and then set out worldwide to kill witches and adding more fuel to the fires. Morlock is the guy that killed Craven's father, got his mother pregnant. And then Ashlyn is the daughter of Morlock out of that whole situation. And so Craven had retired from his witch hunting deal to take his sister to the colonies. So her heritage, 
Marge wouldn't be known to her all those things. So it's now it caught up with him anyway. So word gets out that there are real witches and people are like accusing each other. And that's where the sale of witch trials start brewing in the background. But meanwhile, Craven is training this small group of people that are close to him to battle Morlock's coven. And they do this whole battle. You know, there's 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 a lot of like seduction of Ashlyn and her like in these witchcraft rituals. But the problem is the townspeople are focusing on the not real witches and these people are getting accused and stoned and whatever else. And so it all comes together where they, they finally do capture Morlock's coven and they bring them to town. They say, no, these are the real witches and they tie them up and they're going to burn them at the stake. But Morlock does this incantation as they're burning that supposedly is going to allow the witch's souls to inhabit the bodies of their blood relatives. And Craven's tried to stop it and tried to do this little spell of his own. But he is getting attacked by the townspeople because they want to burn Ashlyn, his sister, because she was with the witches. And so he's fighting back. He's getting beat up. And, the, you know, so ultimately he chooses to save his sister rather than finish his spell at the end. So it's kind of that like dire, a lot of films of the seventies are kind of like this and I carried over to this one. So where he's overcome by the mob, Morlock's laughing as he gets consumed by the flames, you know, Jeremy Irons getting all burned and stuff. And then at the end of the movie, they kind of show this whole situation where this young boy just rises out of the smoldering wreckage of the witch encampment. They had like gone and attacked them and done all this stuff. And all of a sudden he gets surrounded by these like shadowy souls of all the murdered coven of witches. And then it just cuts to black. And that was the end of the movie. And I was always like, that's the end. That was like the best part of the movie. So anyway, but I I don't know. Are you guys, as far as like filmography, like is Jeremy Irons a big one for you? Because like I know him from Lion King and Justice League now. Like I don't know him from anything else. Like, I guess Die Hard oh, with a Vengeance, right? But, but like but this is one of those things where like I didn't know who he was back then. And only recently I was like, oh, it was that guy from the Slangs at Salem. Yeah. No, yeah, not, not his no. work. <laughs> well, the funny thing about Jeremy Irons, Jeremy Irons is, I think, is maybe the best actor in Hollywood personally. Oh, wow! But he does a lot of really bad movies. Like, it totally doesn't surprise me that he did this movie. Like, he did the Dungeons and Dragons movie. He did, oh, really? like, oh. yeah, he did. Aragon, yeah, Pink Panther 2. Yeah. He doesn't pick the best scripts. Okay. Not always, not always. But I mean, like for me personally, like even with um, Man in the Iron Mask, he stole the show and everybody would was agree amazing there. except for Leonardo DiCaprio. Everybody else was amazing <laughs> in that movie and, and he was phenomenal. He's somebody that always collects a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, that could be it. Now, Adam, is this the one where the daughter or the sister or whatever she was, was she, she had like really blonde hair and was always kind of speaking in this really airy voice. Cheryl I feel like Ladd I have seen like, this one then. Yeah, she, she's not the greatest actress and I don't know why she's in this with no. all these kind of other upper tier actors, but cause she's right. like a TV actress, but you know, either way, I guess they just yeah. figure she's cute, put her in there. Cause there is yeah. like an implied like nudity scene. I only saw the TV cut, so I never went <laughs> to it. I don't know if there's more to it. But anyway, so it, even this concept, I, I didn't see the last witch hunter but it kind of sounds like vin diesel or whoever was producing that film also knows about this because i mean there's that whole concept of a secret society hunting down witches you know it just seems like it's there and even donald sutherland going back to the buffy the vampire slayer he was the trainer in buffy right. the vampire slayer right, right. so 
Again, Joss Whedon, we're on to you just because you thought nobody saw this. But anyway, so that always stuck with me. And even when I was in like sixth grade, I started creating this drawing like based on what I thought that collection of souls around this kid was going to look like. Because I was like, what did they do with that? What was he? I guess he was going to do something if they were giving him power or whatever, unless they were just attacking him. And so I created this character called the Night Stalker and all that. But I was like, okay, well, there's movies, TV shows, comic book characters, actual murderers called the Night Stalker. Yeah. I was like, that That name doesn't work. And so <laughs> when I was in college, I started writing like a little treatment and I, I updated it. And I decided to call this sequel Avenging Son. Ooh. So the, my sequel actually opens immediately after the events of the last film with Arthur Craven trying to save his sister, but failing. And so she actually gets burned at the stake along with the witches and he gets really injured, but manages to escape to the woods to mourn in hiding. And meanwhile, the townspeople are celebrating. But that night, several of them are abducted by this horrific wraith that's shrouded in this robe of darkened souls. And Craven comes upon the witch encampment and discovers the wraith returning at dawn and transforming back into the witch boy. And so Craven comforts this frightened child who doesn't know what just happened to him, got all possessed and, you know, went after a bunch of people. Craven knows what happened. And so that night, as the sun is setting, Craven performs a ritual that exercises the souls of Morlock and his coven as they're reappearing to go into the boy and traps them in this amulet. And then Craven tries to kill the boy reluctantly, but he's doing it so there'd be no more blood relatives for Morlock to inhabit should he escape. But he's weakened and he's got the grief on him and all these things. And Craven basically dies before he can stop the boy and he, the kid runs away. So then there's like a credit sequence where we see the boy growing and studying his entire life. He's trying to release his family from this prison and the amulet. And then we finally see he's an old man and he, he collapses dead while writing out this final ritual in this journal. So now it's modern day. And we meet Officer Daniel Murdoch, and he's a Boston beat cop. He really sees the world in black and white. You know, everybody's good guys or bad guys. That's all there is. And he's chasing down this criminal who gets away, and he just can't let it go. And he starts neglecting all these other calls on his radio just so we can catch this one guy. Then as the week goes on, he's still just ignoring stuff so he can put pieces together. Where'd this guy go? Where'd this guy go? And so that's jeopardizing his upcoming promotion to sergeant. Meanwhile, Daniel's getting ready to propose to his girlfriend, Beth, and he's planning to give her this amulet that's been in his family for generations in lieu of an engagement ring. Just kind of a, a little quirky new way of proposing. And he's telling his landlord about it, who runs this used bookstore that's below Daniel's apartment about his plans. And the old man claims to have seen this amulet before in one of his antique books. It gives Daniel the journal with an inscription reading Morlock. And so while reading about the amulet, Daniel accidentally summons the spirits of Morlock's coven who appear to him. They explain, you know, they've been waiting to exact their revenge on the Salem townsfolk because all the kid did that night was tuck them away 
in this limbo state, but they needed a living relative to perform the grisly deed, you know, to actually murder these people and get their revenge. So Daniel's told that his real surname is Morlock. It was just changed over the decades. And he's then possessed against his will. And then he wakes in the morning and he thinks it was all just this crazy nightmare where he was killing a bunch of colonials. You know, (laughs) he was just, oh, it's that weird journal I was reading, you know? So that day at work, Daniel keeps spotting this old man who's following him on his beat. And when the man shows up at Daniel's apartment, he tries to arrest him. But the stalker turns out to be a ghost. And the ghost refers to himself as Arthur. It tells Daniel that he's the only hope he has for escaping the real nightmare that's coming. So Daniel refuses to accept the truth. And then as the sun sets, Arthur disappears and the coven return. And Morlock tells Daniel that this is his destiny. They're giving him great power to correct the injustice he's going to be the avenging son and so they say they're not satisfied now with the death of just their killers but now they want the lives of the descendants of these Salem townsfolk and so they take possession of Daniel again turning him into this wraith but they're allowing him to be conscious for the event this time and it turns out that the criminal who got away is on their hit list so Daniel stops the guy from mugging some people on the subway causing the guy to jump to his death out of the subway car, you know, just in absolute terror. So Daniel's feeling like he finally has the ability to get real justice. Daniel agrees to take on the mantle of the avenging son, as long as people they're targeting are actual criminals. So initially Daniel's in good spirits, you know, he finally proposes to Beth, but she and his police captain start noticing a change in him. And then Arthur's ghost keeps kind of appearing to him in the daytime, trying to convince him to escape from the clutches of the, you know, the influence of these ancestors. But Daniel's enjoying this newfound power too much. But he finally resists one night when he finds out the next target is his fiance, of course. Uh, so only through sheer force of will is he able to prevent her death as she's terrorized on the Boston streets and he's kind of pulling himself out out of the cloak of souls and temporarily revealing his face to her. And so she's still injured though. It ends up in the hospital. So he goes to visit her, tells her the truth about what's going on with them. Arthur appears as well. And so he is telling both of them that, The problem is Daniel gave himself over too long to this evil, so he doesn't have the agency to resist anymore. And the only way now for him to be free is if a pure soul were to give their life to absorb these evil spirits, creating a new place to capture them and to keep them from escaping. So Arthur gives Daniel about some quick training on how to combat the coven when they come back, you know, when the sun sets. So that night, the climax is at Daniel's apartment. Morlock appears and Daniel tries to summon Arthur to help him. But Craven's spiritual form is destroyed, so he's just dead, dead. And Daniel holds off the transformation of the Avenging Son as long as he can using this training he got. But he's about to be possessed, and it's over when Beth appears. You know, she got out of the hospital to go sacrifice herself for Daniel, proclaiming her love for him as she absorbs the coven. And then her purity and battling the evil within her just kind of tears her apart, and she dies. So Daniel's dead devastated obviously after her death and he goes to her funeral 
But afterwards, he gets visited by Beth in a ghostly form. And she says that she bargained for her own soul to be, you know, released from all of that influence and was given the right to bestow the power of the avenging son on Daniel for use against the forces of evil. And so he transforms one more time as we go into credits. There you go. Avenging son. So (laughs) he wins, he loses. I got confused. Well, he wins, but I mean, it depends on how you look at it. Like she dies. So he doesn't get to marry her, but she isn't actually destroyed the way he thought. And then it's kind of now he's got the power to create a new franchise. <laughs> okay, but so she does her sacrifice enables him to be have control and whatever. Right. So it's, okay. it's basically what's you know next movie would be what's he gonna do with that power now? You gotcha. know, like so yeah. All right, I'm with you. All right, so this is it. Now we start talking about what do we want to see uh, in theaters. Which of our pitches newly introduced to most of us? Uh, what do we like best? So, Jeremy, how about you? Who do you want to vote for here? Oh boy, um, you know what? Come back to me. I'm I'm still <laughs> thinking on this. I can't decide between either of yours. I'm not really a fan of uh, witches and junk. Like I, growing up, you like pirates, but you don't like witches. Come yeah, on. Yeah. Like, well, think about this. These are the types of witches that I grew up around. Hocus Pocus. Practical Magic was a little weird. <laughs> Teen Witch. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. The Craft. Anybody? Uh, no. Mm, Feruza yeah. Balk. No, Nev Campbell. <laughs> Halloween yeah. Town. And uh, like the, the cheesy, like Disney-esque type witches. So We're going to finally make them scary, uh, Jeremy. Come on. Uh, well, no, now you're making the witches a superhero. Yeah, well, right. eventually. Yeah, yeah, by the end. <laughs> there you go. He's kind of like the Punisher, but he's a witch. Punisher, but the witch. Kind of like a Punisher, but he's a witch. You know, uh, I'm going to hold so, off. But, but Jeff, on. Jeff's the devil. You want the devil or you want witches? You yeah, decide. those are your two options here, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, I I may need to hold off and be the tiebreaker here. I want to I want to see what you guys do. Jeff, what about you? Well, I'm gonna have to go with the witches because I I, the the teaser wasn't wasn't uh, I know you were teasing us, Jeremy, but uh, I just I didn't get enough to bite to bite just yet on the on the pirates. And to be perfectly honest, like we were talking about, I think pirates burned more bridges for me than witches did. So. And of course, my wife, being the Harry Potter fan, would want me to vote for the witches. So, okay, there you go. See, Jeremy, witches, <laughs> <laughs> but they're wizards, right? They're not witches, Jeff. Well, those well, are the females. Like, the females would be witches, right? Oh, I guess you're right. Okay. Um, so for me, uh, I think I'm also in the same boat. Ah, no pun uh, intended. Pun intended. But, <laughs> But Jeremy, I was like, I, I like the idea of turning a flop and taking it into a full comedy direction. But I was just like, I don't, I don't, I guess I'm just, it's just funny deaths for captains. And I wasn't quite sure <laughs> what to do with that. And with Jeff's, I was like, okay, well, the devil's going throughout history and he's having some influence. Good wins in the end. The devil doesn't even know it, which is funny. So I think I was going to vote for Jeff's on that, even though... It's kind of a a darker film. 
Again, I feel like there's something to be said in that universe that we could do. All right, I'm going to have to flip a coin here. And the witches have it. Hey! Avenging son. So I guess this is the question then, because Jeff, you sounded a little confused at the end. Yeah. What was there? Some, were there some plot holes or some logic that didn't connect for you <laughs> in, in well, this whole development? To be, to be honest, I'm not sure how closely I watched that original movie, so I can't. I, I feel like I would have remembered a bad guy named Morlock, especially because I kept getting Morlock and Craven confused. Right. Because they both sound evil. They no. Sound- they do, but I know, like, uh, in the movie, I would just, I just kept calling him Donald Sutherland, so I, I, I didn't even think yeah. that he had a name. So, well, like, we can't really change the names, though, if this no, is a I sequel know. featuring those characters. Sequel, yeah. with that, but... I honestly kept thinking, well, the only Morlocks I know are the X-Men right. and yeah. Craven, yeah, the Hunter, so... Which but... is, again, I think the writers, I mean, because I think the Morlocks were created, like, in the mid-80s, so, you know, well, maybe John Byrd and Chris Claremont watched this film, know. too, and just... Oh, okay. <laughs> the Morlocks are from H.G. Wells' time machine, people. Uh... No, they were from this movie. <laughs> Which was a Jeremy Irons thing. Jeremy Irons was in the time machine? Yeah. He was H.G. Wells. Yeah, that was one of his... um... Not-so-hot movies. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, that's not the one where he goes after Jack the Ripper. Somewhere in time. That's That's a different one. No, it was the one with Guy Pearce. It was when Guy Pearce actually had his shot at being Uh, a star. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeremy Irons. Was, which they cut out in the original movie, but it's in the original book where he's the future of mankind, which he does creepy well. Anyway, but he's not, we're not talking about him. So basically he, he's a cop, right? That finds yeah. out that he's actually a witch and that they want him to become this wraith. And so now what does this wraith look like in your eyes? He's scary. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the way I used to draw him again, when I was imagining what would they do with this, he almost had a full fan of the opera mask and then he looked like cloak from cloak and dagger, the comic book. And I was oh. like, eh, it's a little too derivative. And so I started reimagining him. Like I said, I almost see him. We talked about Harry Potter. I also think about Lord of the Rings, but those wraiths that were in oh. those movies kind of more less skeletal more voluminous. It's not like actual cloth. It's cloth that's composed of these darkened souls. So he can control it a little bit like Spawn's cape, I would imagine. Like the subway attack where he's going after that criminal he was chasing. It's like he darkens all the windows and then he just like is scaring the guy to death. And, you know, I imagined he would be able to smack people around with it. Right. Well, and I feel like that's actually a pretty good, like Spawn, that sounds like a pretty good comparison. Mm -hmm. Except for for the whole being dead thing. Yeah. Okay. okay. And he's not a witch per se. He's just a blood relative right. of some people that right. were witches. <laughs> so now, because I was thinking too, as you were going through it, I was I was remembering our when we did our sequel to The Fly. And I think that was how we landed on it, about that idea that the flies off, at least that was my pitch. I don't remember if that's the one we voted for. But my sure. pitch was that the fly's son turns into, he's like a cop that realizes that he could be a super cop or whatever whatever because of his his power wasn't he a firefighter i think right you're right he was a firefighter so in this case yeah it's it's like that but now now is it that like the evil is taking over or is it what how how do you see that well though it's morlock and the coven like they are convincing him 
that it's a good thing. That's why like they they're specifically choosing the targets after the fact that they want to continue, you know, getting revenge on these descendants. They're basically saying, look, these are criminals. You want to stop them. And so they're seducing him into allowing it because eventually their goal is they're just going to take him over completely and have him kill, kill, kill all the time to satiate their bloodlust. So it's more that he's it's not that he's 100 percent turning evil, but he is being manipulated to think that he's doing the right thing. He's getting the justice he can't get. Like so many, you know, jaunties that start out as cops and then they say, ah, I gotta go on my own. It's the only way to do the right thing. It's This is the real right thing, you know? So there's kind of that moral conundrum there, but he's not 100% going over to the dark side. He's just confused. Uh, so then as an audience, we're supposed to connect to the cop, but not the coven. They're the bad guys. Correct. Okay. But he's not... Does he ever fight against them? Well, that's just the end. Like the climax is right. Him waking up and realizing, oh, and you know, it's the fact that his next person he almost kills is his fiance. That's what wakes him up and says, oh, you know, this is wrong. I, sh- I, sh- I should have been, you know, more aware of my own morality and what is right and what is wrong. You know, so he's basically fighting them in the end, but it's more that she saves him. I guess the climax isn't so heroic for him other than he's resisting he's doing all these little spells that craven has taught him but it's not enough and so that's why beth has to come in at the end and sacrifice herself so so you you get the action of what he would be doing but you know if he was in complete control you see a couple of those chases of criminals but he's not the hero yet jeremy what were your thoughts was there something that didn't quite connect for you because you are a connoisseur of superhero type tales no, it works. I'm just trying to think how to enhance the villain because a lot of these type stories, mm. you gotta have an engaging villain or else it turns into Thor the Dark World. Oh, yeah. I thought at one point about possibly saying that they find one more blood relative and then they go and there's a more evil race. I don't know. What to say. I feel like, like that there would be like a me. clash. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think it would be. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is with Jeremy Irons is so you've got the gravitas. You just have yeah. to give him the role. So do they appear like in ghostly form or is it just a voice or because that I, could be significant too. Right. Yeah. The visual of it. Yeah. I, I was mm-hmm. kind of imagined sort of similar to Pirates of the Caribbean in the first one where they are deteriorating like they are spiritual forms but maybe we need to have some sort of timetable for them like they've now been brought back but maybe they have to have body to possess more completely in a certain amount of time so that's why Morlock is getting a little bit more intense or something but yeah I, I always mm. picture that more ghostly and a little gross you know so they are scary you know they're not debonair people that are walking around and talking <laughs> to him they're there has to be some edge. I know it sounds like their their motivation is just revenge, right? right. So they just want to kill all the people that killed them. So yeah. what if it's their secret motivation that they don't tell him is the fact that maybe they need the blood of their killers or something like that must that that's how they will then be brought back. And mm. so, because oh, I, I just okay. feel kind of like Jeremy was saying is that one, yeah, you need to have kind of a, a presence of a villain, but I feel like, especially because we're talking about this guy gaining these abilities, which he's like pretty into or whatever. I feel like we need a final conflict where he's able to turn 
his abilities against the bad guy. So yeah. if in some way, like maybe there's been enough sacrifices that just Morlock has been able, or maybe towards the end, or maybe he's back, but he's not strong enough or, or whatever. And okay. that somehow one last one, or maybe he even sacrifices one of his coven. Would that be inappropriate? I mean, of course it wouldn't be, but like, <laughs> too inappropriate. And then that somehow brings him back. Then the, the cop has to fight Morlock. This might be a better way to go then. Yeah. Is I like that idea that maybe as they kill the descendants, then Morlock, like you said, could come back to a corporeal form and gain strength and power from that. But what if it's that the coven that we're making, you know, Daniel, the cop, the avenging son, once a Morlock has a corporeal form, they jump on him. So he becomes that wraith. And now Daniel doesn't have the power. They're going to kill him. But maybe Craven brings the souls of the townspeople that he murdered originally at Morlock's request now that they've been killed maybe Craven can transfer their power to Daniel so it's kind of like a wraith versus wraith but ones of light ones of darkness type thing or something I don't know how you guys feel about that so then you kind of have similar powers battling each other unless that's too cliched at that point maybe (laughs) (laughs) could be but I I understand what you're saying because like to your point Jeremy I, I thought that the the conflict and the, you know, when you say a good villain, I feel like it was more about Morlock's, the way he's trying to corrupt Daniel's soul. And it's the battle for his purity and his soul that's really at stake, as opposed to like a knockdown drag out fight like we were just talking about. It's not about yeah. who has the biggest stick. It's about who has the greatest character, the greatest sense of justice that's true or whatever, you know, like the, so it's more of a philosophical battle. There just happens to be these supernatural natural elements in play he's mm. a good villain because of the type of villainy he's portraying throughout and then he's defeated by the purity of the girlfriend was kind of the concept unless that just seems like too much of a cop-out a deus well no that's very much cloak and dagger as you were mentioning their mm. relationship so yeah, the light and the darkness yeah yeah the symbiotic relationship there yeah i guess that works yeah. I mean, what, what would you guys think casting wise for someone who could play off that? Because like my initial thought was somebody like Jake Gyllenhaal, although mm. I feel like he's too big for this type of movie, but yeah. I don't know. Mm. You know, because they're talking about him maybe playing Batman. So I feel like he could give us kind of those dark Dottie Darko. He was kind of yeah. always weird throughout that whole movie. But, you know, you, you know, he's got that side to him. He can bring out when you need to where he's like jovial and happy. And then all of a sudden he just like uh, dark circles around the eyes what's going on with this guy you know hmm. what about it might be interesting what was the the guy's name from get out he had an interesting played and then it, it's almost a similar sort of a thing like they didn't get out when he's being brainwashed and everything being controlled and all yeah and then we're not whitewashing the film <laughs> right oh well because my thought is making daniel so drastically different yeah that'd be really cool actually that gives it a, yeah, a whole nother element for sure i mean and even if we wanted to you could possibly play on that that could add to morlock's villainy as well maybe he has a disdain for the fact that now his bloodline has been mingled you know like mm. there's like this race racial element that he could be 
again, that can make us hate him all the more. That's you true. Know, something That's along true. those lines. Yeah. And otherwise, I guess there aren't any too Beyonce. many major roles. The, the girl, right? The girlfriend. So, yeah. again, maybe someone who's starting to get a little bit more buzz or okay so the girlfriend has to be related to the witches or no uh... she, she was just related to the colonial people in salem right, so the true. townspeople but she wasn't a witch anya taylor joy she's kind of an up-and-comer what's she from let's see she's from split the witch thoroughbreds hey. i mean oh, yeah. it's it's in oh, there she's what? also in new yeah. mutants i believe she's oh. tabbed to play magic okay kaluuya he's 28 she's 21 you could also go with olivia cook uh she's from bates motel ouija the quiet ones uh, she's also in the upcoming Ready Player One. So they have some experience with Supernatural. Yeah, they've got a lot of, uh, a little bit of experience there with it. Mm. But who of those actresses just, again, because I'm not super familiar with them, who exudes the greatest goody two-shoes, such a pure and sweet soul, like that, that, that's been displayed, not necessarily like streetwise and tough they're actors so they can play <laughs> well, both. traditionally which one would you lead towards that says oh i would i would buy her some sort of angelic figure i was picturing her more like strong-willed no well yes I, could. I would say that i mean she can be strong-willed but of a pure heart right right, right, right. well yeah 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 yeah, I don't want to be like it is too super innocent necessarily, mm. but just like the Anya Taylor Joy looks like she could play more on the dark side of the witch's side. Yeah. Oh, you know what? What about where were we just talking about? Who was the gal? I can never remember her name. We just saw her in uh, Downton Abbey, and she was in that new Cinderella movie. Oh, the one I brought up on the Oscar yeah. show? Yeah. Yes. Lily James. Yeah, Lily James. Yeah. James. Okay. Yeah, she I, seems like she has more of that angelic. I thing would that agree. You were talking about. Yeah. Although I guess she's not actually a blonde. She's a blonde in I don't know Cinderella. why blonde makes yeah. more angelic, but she not only not only her hair, but she has just kind of her voice, and she has kind of that air about her. That could work. Yeah, I think that would be. I mean, I, again, I I mentioned that I liked her and all the stuff I've seen her in so far last time, so I think that would be a pretty strong casting choice. I was actually leaning Olivia Cook. But this one, Lily James at work, they both have a similar look to them. They both have naturally dark hair, so it really doesn't matter. You can play it off either way. And the, the, the last person I was just thinking was, you know, the store owner that, you know, the antique bookseller who's his landlord. Like, who's the kindly old man that you want to uh, be his friend in town? You know, his little mentor. I was trying to think of a an older actor, whether it's like a genre actor or somebody you just want to bring in. For a, so now, a fun is, role. This, is this his mentor or what? I didn't understand mm. that because then Craven shows up somehow, right? Yeah, Cra Craven's his mentor. This guy's more just like his friend. So it would almost be like probably a more comedic role. Mm. It'd be somebody who's just a little bumbling old man who's just loves his books and he makes little jokes that nobody gets. He's the only one that thinks they're funny, that type of thing. But he's oh, how old? 70s, I was thinking. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're looking at like the Morgan Freemans, the James Earl Jones, hmm. Lawrence what about, Fishburne. 
I don't know if you guys watch uh, This Is Us, but what about Ron Cephas Jones that plays the dad on This Is Us, William? Yeah, you could do that. He has that sort of a vibe. racist in our casting if we're only trying well, to find an African-American actor to be an African-American character's friend? <laughs> like, no, but I mean, but that... but his mentor is a white guy. His bad guy is a white yeah, guy. His girlfriend true. is, oh, it would totally make sense. I think it would actually be, if he's literally the only black guy in this entire movie. Then, <laughs> then it's Get Out get Part out 2. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, so with the with the shopkeeper, like, is he just a collector of the occult books? Does he have some tie to the supernatural or is he just strictly an old man who collects old books exactly yeah that, that's how i imagined him he, he's just a normal person he doesn't play into the plot heavily other than to just be a little bit of a sounding board for daniel the yeah, i didn't realize that the character's name is daniel now the actor we're casting is daniel <laughs> could, um, could we do just uh cuba gooding jr and old man makeup why he needs work is that what you're saying wow Get cuba Back in the spotlight. I mean, wasn't um, he OJ recently? Uh, Danny oh. Glover? I was going to say Danny Glover. I mean, he did a similar role in Be Kind Rewind. What about Reginald Bell Johnson? Pass away? Are I don't think around? so. <laughs> I think on our Die Hard episode, we asked about that. They were like, nope, he's still here. Well, we it's been a little while. It's hard. It's hard. There's so many talented older oh, actors. No, there he is. I just like the idea because he seems like the guy who, even when he was playing Carl Winslow, and I was just watching Family Matters last night. That's why I saw my mind. Yeah. But, now, we're, uh, now we're getting to it. But he, he just <laughs> seems like the kind of guy who could play a little bit guarded, a little bit weird guy, even though he's jovial, but he's also a little awkward. Well, uh, like either him fun. or Tim Reed as well. Was he in the It miniseries? Was that Tim Reed? Yeah, the same one. Yeah, he was oh. in It. I Actually, Tim Reed would be really good now that I think about him. Thinking about <laughs> he played... He played the librarian, you know, and it, he was kind of had a little bit of something going on behind, behind his eyes there that you were like, oh, he's got a dark past. Oh, it's Pennywise. <laughs> oh, all right. Tim Reed it is. And then director wise, I mean, unfortunately, Toby Hooper has passed, so he can't take on this role. So, hey, why don't we just borrow from Jeff? You think Guillermo del Toro be interested in doing this? Or we give uh, Joss Whedon an actual opportunity. Hey, why don't you just fess up to it? You stole Buffy from this concept. Now you can make it make it real. Use your superhero tendencies. You're good with your comic book storylines. He would spruce up the script for us. Other than the fact that it doesn't seem like a Del Toro thing. I mean, there is the supernatural, obviously. Yeah. We've got the vampires or whatever. Yeah. Witches. Yeah. I mean, especially like we were talking about with kind of his roots and kind of the horror genre. And and I thought like at least the first Hellboy, you know, he does well in the superhero era. Yeah. I still contend that Shape of Water was also a superhero movie, but that's a separate story. <laughs> Let's do it. Come on. We'll get Del Toro in there. It'll be another Oscar winning film. <laughs> clearly. Clearly. But, but that's what always happens, right? People win their Oscar and then they make bad choices afterwards. <laughs> so this could be that bad choice. I'll accept it. Go. Take my screenplay. You can blame me. Look what I was working with. That's my Del Toro. That was your Del Toro impression. impression. <laughs> <laughs> I guess with that, 
It doesn't really matter because... Is the jig up? Can we... April Fool's! April Fool's! (laughs) Yeah, folks, we totally just BS'd six different movies for this show. None of those existed. You were probably checking IMDb while you were listening and saying, um, excuse me, uh, I do not believe... Uh, Jeremy Irons was in production on this film. uh... So just to clarify, the three movies that we said we were Facing sequels on none of those movies actually existed yeah yeah doesn't mean they still couldn't you like them take it but we just there you go. to share with you that we have some original ideas too <laughs> and, uh, what can we do with them I don't, I don't know about you guys but i went pretty deep into it and made sure my actors weren't actually in production on movies yeah. <laughs> at that time well what was funny was i actually was listening to this other great podcast it's called 80s all over where they basically go year by year month by month and talk about every film that was released in the 80s and the one I was listening to today, their episode just came out. They had back to back talking about a Donald Sutherland film and a Jeremy Irons film in 1983. So my being in 1984, I was like, oh, perfect. It would fit right in. They could have been working <laughs> wow. on this. And so any 80s all over fans out there, you were like, oh, yeah, OK, that makes sense. But I like what you guys came up with, actually. Jeff, yours was pretty mind bending. Jeremy, I thought that was interesting. The uh, Again, having a pipe pirates competitor that flopped <laughs> that was really right a good cover yeah so there you go we're just having a little fun we got to celebrate the holiday somehow you know we're not just gonna do a an episode with silence or something oh no we're giving away our ideas for future episodes. <laughs> but yeah we are coming back next week like we said tron 3 michael Kennedy will be here real this time back into what we do. this is seriously gonna happen yeah this is the yeah. real deal <laughs> <laughs> Tron did exist and so did Tron Legacy. Go back and check. Outside of that, for those that are interested in not so mainstream films, but want to find something new, something independent that's exciting. I actually got drafted last year to write for a website called popgeeks.net where I do movie reviews. And they send me all sorts of screener links and stuff. And I'm seeing movies you're not going to find anywhere else. But if you want to go check it out, popgeeks.net, I write under the moniker of Hoju Coolander. And uh, you can find all my reviews there and see if there's anything that looks interesting. One in particular that I'll mention was a pretty awesome Sasquatch film. That may be interesting. Go on. The premise of it was that there's these people that basically, you know, get lost in the woods and Bigfoot is like a warrior. Bigfoot is, he wears armor that's made of wood and bark and he has, uh-huh. you know, he's got a bow and arrow and stuff. And it's these people, it's, it's kind of like the predator with Bigfoot. You know, like where they're being hunted, but it's all practical effects. And it was done by this guy who worked on the Spider-Man films and a bunch of other pretty big name productions. So it's really cool. It's called Primal Rage. It had a one night only screening, you know, Fathom Events did that, but it's coming out soon on DVD and VOD. So that'd be a cool one to check out. But you can go read my review from February on that one. But 
you know, most of these movies are, it's, I'm kind of 50 50. It's like, eh, that's so great. Eh, this one was pretty cool in concept, or like that one. I was like, okay, this is awesome. Like, people need to see this movie. Anyway, just, just to give you guys something else to look for. Jeremy, you want to plug also just our Marvel 10 year anniversary special? Oh boy, we are going to get down and nerdy <laughs> with all the Marvel universe and all that it encompasses leading up to Avengers Infinity War on April 27th. Just remember, it's April 27th, not May 4th. They moved it up. We're going to roll through an award show type thing with all of our favorite moments. And I believe we're going to go almost six, seven people deep on this. Get as many guests as we can. And yeah, we're not going to be like every other podcast is probably going to rate every movie, movie by movie. We're not going to get too deep into that. But like Jeremy said, we're going to have some fun with an award show format. So it's just the highlights. What made 10 years of the MCU so special. So that'll just be a, a bonus sequel chat episode you can keep an eye out for here. It's kind of our version of the Oscars, the movies we obviously care right. the most about. <laughs> so until next time, fool ya! We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com Following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching SequelQuest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on SequelQuest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 